0: We think that one can take a different kind of encoding scheme on DNA and apply it to previously encoded data stored in DNA and operate on that and produce different kinds of results. We know we can do this in branching problems. We know we can do this in search problems, and we're in the process of investigating other domains of applicability of that kind of thought.
1: Hello and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at
2: contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad10. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Leaders of B2B. I'm Ledge. I am the co founder and managing partner of Ad10, one, one of your co hosts here. And I'm happy to welcome Dave Turek today. He's the CTO of Catalog. Dave, would you mind giving a a little intro of yourself and your business for the audience who uh, doesn't know you yet?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So our business right now is dedicated to investigating the applications in business of the applications of synthetic biology and principally with respect to the mechanisms by which one can store data uh, into DNA molecules. So we're constructing these molecules artificially, they're not being harvested from plant, animal, or anything like that. Uh, But DNA, as we know by virtue of the fact that we all exist, uh, is a wonderful medium for storing information. The information typically is used to govern the behavior and structure of organisms, but in our case, we're actually using DNA to encode data, Um, and that has many wonderful features to it, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and portends the shift in um, attitudes towards alternative mechanisms for storing data in the computing industry.
2: Dave, that's fascinating. Just tell me, I mean, how did you even begin to get into such a thing? This is the kind of stuff that I read about, you know, in my, my science news. And it kind of seems just like way out there, you know, like to me, it's like uh, traveling to Mars level stuff. So, yeah, just talk to me about how did you get there and, and come to actually work in, in such a forward leading space?
0: I think part of it is because as an industry, the computing industry is always dealing with impediments to progress, especially now, for example, when you look at the difficulty of embracing new technologies to get to five nanometers or three nanometers or things like that in the microprocessor arena. This issue of constraints is prevalent in many, many different uh, domains of the computer industry. So it was pretty natural for me to look at what was going on in the storage space as an adjunct to what's going on in computing and to begin to think how new technologies could be deployed to service some of the needs that we're seeing manifest out of that space, um, driven by certain first principles, right? Uh, dramatic growth in data, desire to preserve data for prolonged periods of time, these long lasting archives, et cetera, et cetera all gave rise to consideration of using biological means to uh, to investigate how one would deal with those kinds of issues, as opposed to conventional electronic media. So for me, it was kind of a natural thing to look at. Um, I had a previous long career in IBM, where I spent a lot of time developing or looking at emerging technologies. So as the opportunity presented itself, I said, well, this, this sort of makes sense. It's consistent with what I've been doing for a long time. And the opportunity to work at the leading edge is always an attractive feature of anything you do.
2: So how does this, I mean, for the the layman here, and I I can't say that I know a great deal about it. I think I understand the the concept of you've got base pairs and you've got proteins and like you put data in order. It's not unlike zeros and ones in a computer. How does that manifest into storage and where and why would you want to do this sort of into the the future there like paint the picture maybe of where are we going with a technology like that that ultimately could get into everyone's lives or maybe it's not in everyone's lives and it's maybe just for you know huge scale types of things
0: right so the way we handle this issue of encoding data into DNA is probably best explained by thinking of buckets of Legos, if you will. Every Lego is a different color or each bucket is a different color. Um, And we assemble these in a predefined order so that you create a Lego train, if you will, might be blue, green, yellow, red, and the next one might be green, yellow, blue, red, and so on and so forth. Um, And how that relates to DNA is we actually take small, predefined, manufactured segments of DNA. You can do this commercially. Uh, from a lot of different places. And we assemble these in a particular order using particular pieces or Legos, if you will, from a pool of Legos that we've asked to be manufactured. And by virtue of looking at the combination of how these things are sequenced, it imparts a very particular piece of information. So, um, and that piece of information is location in a bitstream. So now let me take you to this concept of a bitstream. So bitstream is nothing more than a sequence of zeros and ones, and depending on how you divide up those zeros and ones, it can be rendered as a byte or a long word or something else, and that in turn can be representative of, a, of a let's say, a vowel in an alphabet or a numerical value or something like that. But a regular file may have a trillion bits in a bitstream, zeros and ones. And what we do is we use DNA to say, well, the 25th bit is gonna be a zero. The 1050th bit is gonna be a one. And those two composed synthetic molecules are different from each other. They're uniquely defined, so they define a unique space or spot in this bit stream. They can't be confused with anything else. So by virtue of manufacturing longer molecules of DNA from very short snippets of DNA, we're actually able to take this Lego metaphor and create a trillion-bit long uh, bitstream without much difficulty.
2: And so, it's a a very small way then to store data in that that long bitstream. And the practical usage then would be: I think you know people hear like DNA, you know, and they think, well, it's got to be inside a living organization and or, or organism. Where and why would you need the data then to, to be stored in, in this different form factor?
0: Right. So the first thing is DNA is just a molecule. It's sort of a special molecule with special features, but it can exist outside the body, outside of the cell, and under the proper circumstances. And it's about a million times more dense than conventional electronic media in terms of storing data. So if you can encode data into DNA, you get a million time density factor at play here. So now you take some of the large libraries that exist, which you know today they occupy comp- complete buildings and you put it in the size of let's say a sugar cube. And now you walk around with maybe all the knowledge of mankind in a couple of sugar cubes and, um, and it lasts effectively forever. Um, We know it lasts for a long time because of course, people have harvested DNA from dinosaurs, from insects located in amber and so on, tens of thousands, millions of years. So under the proper circumstances, you can preserve this for a very long time. You avoid energy costs in terms of doing that. Energy is a really tremendous driver of concern in the compute industry today. Um, And we can, for example, take this volume of dna and we can either put it in liquid form or we can create a little solid pellet out of it and that pellet can sit in the palm of your hand and that's everything you've ever wanted encoded in a little pellet and when you need to you can reconstitute it and read that data back so it's density it's energy efficiency but there's one other thing that we think is also in play here and that is we also believe that data sorry the DNA can actually be used to compute and uh, what I mean by that is we think that one can take a different kind of encoding scheme on DNA and apply it to previously encoded data stored in DNA and operate on that uh, and produce different kinds of results. We know we can do this in branching problems, we know we can do this in search problems, And we're in the process of investigating other domains of applicability of that kind of thought. So why would we use DNA for compute? Well, one of the features of DNA is I can make trillions of copies of DNA very quickly and very cheaply. So in a sense, it's the the ultimate dream in terms of embracing parallelism. I can do one thing a million different times or a trillion different times, cheaply and very, very quickly. So these two ideas are coming together and it portends this transformation that's been going on in the computing industry as well. So if I take you back a few years, well, for many people still today, people view data and storage as dichotomous with respect to compute, two different things. I have a computer over here, but I have a data archive over here and never the twain shall meet. And the question is, why do we need to have that dichotomy? Um, why cannot we compute on data while it's sitting in storage? And there have been attempts to try to do this in the past. Certainly with an IBM, IBM bought a company called Netiza, which attempted to kind of factor data prior to having a, more, a, a much smaller amount of data go to compute you see a lot of different schemes like this being applied. We also did work in terms of computing in the network. And all these schemes are meant to reduce the latency of getting the result that you want from the data you're analyzing. Because the amounts of data that are now stored in an archive, if you will, the simple time it takes to transmit that to a computer is significant. You know, could be a day, could be multiple days, could be a week. So why not have a storage device that's sort of computing in the background all the time on the data that you've presented to it? So what we're looking to do is um, instantiate and legitimize the notion of DNA as a vehicle to encode data, but also to demonstrate and eventually commercialize the concept of merging DNA as a compute mechanism to operate on that data, and then ultimately get in the position where the difference between data and compute is obliterated, if you will. So there are no more things like passive storage devices. All devices are active all the time. It's just that they're active in a biological context and not an electronic context.
2: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, starting to get, get my head around it. (laughs) Um, I'm aware of some of the discussions around, you know, mechanical electronic, like nanotech technology. Does this, exist in a a similar theoretical kind of space there? Does that go together at all?
0: Well, it it is uh, in the following sense. Um, We operate chemically at uh, a PICO level, which is three orders of magnitude smaller than nano. And we're looking at getting to a FEMTO level, which is three orders of magnitude smaller than PICO. So the difference between nanotechnology and where we want to operate, not there yet, is a million times smaller, right? And uh, that's the invocation of chemistry at such a small uh, amount of volume that you also begin to fundamentally attack the costs of chemistry that are associated with encoding data into DNA. I mean, they're cost to everything, right? So you always wanna go smaller, cheaper, better, faster, you know, the four horsemen, so to speak. So, um, So that's in play. But I think there's also a dramatic opportunity to kind of integrate biological and electronic technologies. And so there are discussions in the literature and in in the private sector, for example, about building laboratories on a chip, if you will. Yeah, think of chips, conventional size, but now using microfluidics, having chemistry flowing through the chip in some fashion, and then having a combination of chemistry and electronics working in concert to produce a result as well and we're doing investigative work in that domain as well to see the role of micro microfluidics and the viability of merging together electronic technologies with biological technology
2: so talk to me about now you, you left industry or you know sort of enterprise industry you went on your own you're an entrepreneur now and what I I hear is an interesting story about, you know, sort of commercialization, like some people, let's say an entrepreneur has a huge idea, a body of knowledge, you know, 20 years in industry, and now sort of take it on the road and do their own thing, your own thing. What was that journey like? And I know it hasn't been huge yet, but it's a a totally different experience that is sort of having this huge organization behind you. And now you're on your own. And, and second to that, you know, sort of thinking about taking something from a lab, from a theoretical research standpoint and commercializing it, you know, what's what's all that like because some of the most exciting things that there might be in the heads of of the entrepreneur, you know, kind of live that way and it's daunting to to think about ultimately making a self-sustaining cash flow stream from it.
0: I think there are simple ideas that um, help you get over the hump in this kind of consideration. The first thing is demonstration um, is wonderful in terms of convincing people of the reality of what you have conceptually. So what we did about a year and a half ago was uh, design and ultimately build and manufacture a machine that automates the process of encoding data into DNA. So it's out of the space of beakers and test tubes and pipettes and so on to an actual physical device that uh, can produce roughly uh, a terabit of data a day encoded into DNA. And it's, um, I characterize it as a confluence of chemistry, software, and hardware all coming together to make this real. The utility of that, of course, is that when you talk to potential clients, they've got something they can touch and feel and inspect and they can begin to observe that what you have is realizable. Now, it may not be ultimately the best form or the most optimal form of what you produce from a commercial perspective, but it dramatically accelerates the conversation that people have with you about the nature of what you're doing. So to that end, we're in the midst right now of a number of proofs proofs of concept with the technology using our design machine with commercial customers. Uh, from a variety of different industries. Um, The second thing I would say is that you kind of have to have timing be correct, right? You know, one of the interesting analogies here is the advent of uh, accelerators in the computing industry with Nvidia and and, um, AMD and others uh, coming to the fore now with respect to the commercialization of accelerators. People talked about the use of accelerators in computing for decades, but the problem was Moore's law would accelerate at such a pace that by the time you built, designed and commercialized the accelerator, Moore's law caught up to the accelerator. But now with Moore's law effectively uh, slowing down, let's say, or coming to a terminus, suddenly you see a need for a different pathway to get, get you to where you wanna be. So in our case, with respect to the biological approach, Now you have customers coming to us who are observing because listen, these customers are sophisticated. They're looking at what's going on in the industry. They're looking at trends and directions and they're making the call it. We need to explore emerging technologies to see if it could play a role for us here. And it's given rise to people even reconstructing or maybe redefining is the better word, this sort of hierarchy of storage. Right. Where you look at hot storage and nearby stuff and you look at variations on that theme. Then you get to archive and now you get to really cold storage. And then you get to storage dedicated to disaster recovery. And people are inventing terms like uh, write once, read never. So this churn of language is itself representative of the willingness of the marketplace to begin to accept the concept of change. And once you get the mindset of the marketplace moving in that direction, and you couple that with demonstrable capability to actually serve an alternative to uh, what customers are seeing in their own businesses, you've really moved the ball dramatically forward. Uh, And then after that, it's just work. I mean, you have to show that you have a roadmap, you have to show if the roadmap is viable, you have to show what the benefits are over prolonged periods of time, because there is an inertia in the adoption of new technology as well. You know, you you look at uh, buying agents or buyers of compute technology. You know, some of these people have made their careers out of doing the same thing over and over again with slightly different or evolutionary steps in technology, year after year after year. And then suddenly you come along and say, all that electronic stuff you know about—it's no longer uh, relevant. You've got to go biological. And somebody who's been at it for 25 or 30 years says, "Wait, wait my career is jeopardized. I've got to find reasons not to." follow this new step. So we're alert to those things. We've, in my particular case, I mean, I did that for decades in IBM as we introduced generation after generation of new technology, and we moved from, you know, vector machines to parallel machines and to accelerators and all points in between. So that experience, I think, serves us well in terms of anticipating the kinds of objections we'll see, but also understanding the dynamics associated with uh, uh, the acceptance of innovation.
2: Right. Yeah. You, you hit on a thing that I think all of us in any technology field would know about. And it, it's just simply the the human factor of adopting any new technology. And this could be a simple SaaS tool. It could be anything even remotely disruptive. Uh, people kind of don't like to change. And <laughs> You know, it it has to be presented and marketed in such a way that would allow that excitement to overcome the the speed bump of adoption. And so, ultimately, if we could put all the human knowledge in the sugar cubes, then what will be the next focus? Is it a sense that you can read, write, and operate in those those tiny spaces? And what does that you know kind of unleash? into, I don't know, 50 years from now in the the consumer space?
0: Well, I think that um, it gives you the chance to deal with issues of security, which are becoming progressively more pronounced by effectively being disconnected from the internet. So think about search, for example. You, You have to be connected to the internet to do search. But what if you have all the information in history in a handheld device do you still need connection to the internet so you you have opportunities to be air gapped from some of the domains that are problematic today from a security perspective you have the opportunity to progressively miniaturize other kinds of devices in the electronic domain i mean the electronics are not going to go away if in that domain you no longer have to worry about the density of storage or the energy of storage and, and things like that it gives The possibility to be quite imaginative and creative about how you start slicing up, let's say, your energy budget in terms of devices that you're building, and uh, and because that's becoming progressively more and more relevant across across the planet. Uh, When you look at RFPs that come out in the computing space, everybody's now concerned about energy, everybody's concerned about the greenness of technology, and so on. So I think it unleashes possibilities that are unconstrained by some of the things that typically constrain the electronic approach of computing. I think by virtue of doing that, it opens up possibilities of hybridization and hybridization in a couple of different ways. So the first way is it's sort of the merging of technologies from different fields to create a new device, partially biological, partially electronic, maybe something else to do something that neither one of those domains could accomplish on their own. So that's one notion. But there's another notion if you look at um, the future of computing from kind of a workflow perspective. So uh, notice I didn't say application. And what I mean by workflow is everything you need to do to get the job done from the acquisition of data, storing it, moving it, computing it, factoring the data, iterating on the data, all points in between. And when you do that, you begin to experience the opportunity associated with decomposition of workflows. So you can cut off data and put it to your left and you can take a particular algorithm buried in a computational piece of the workflow that may be suitable for quantum and put it off to the right. And then you look at some other algorithms and you say, no, they're not gonna be served by quantum. We're gonna dedicate those to a von Neumann architecture. And suddenly you see a complex of computing capabilities at kind of the macro level, that allow you to optimize the way you execute workflows, and I think over the course of time, people need to get more and more comfortable with that concept because of well the diversity of technologies that are available and how um, upon investigation you discover that you know one size doesn't fit all. And we've tried that for you know decades now. We've tried to use a very conventional von Neumann architecture to solve all things. But I can tell you that every step of the way from a design point of view, dramatic compromises have been made to carve out benefits that accrue to maybe a subset of a complete portfolio of applications and make a couple or you know a dozen or whatever really important ones look really, really good, maybe at the expense of the others. And now there's this beginning of a shift as these more exotic technologies start to manifest themselves where people can actually entertain the idea of uh, workflow decomposition and best tool for the
2: job at hand some problems are best solved by different types of computing you mentioned quantum i think what we take for granted as the the normal architecture now is in fact just optimized for certain types of problems that are Handled in different ways. Talk about maybe that quantum and um, artificial intelligence, you know, as they they fit into your your space, because I think that's exciting from a, at least from a a pop science perspective, and we can see it popping up in all kinds of applications on the business side. Where where does all that intersect?
0: So let me take AI first.
2: We'll talk about
0: that. We employ concepts for machine learning and artificial intelligence in the operation of our own infrastructure. So if you think about this machine I've alluded to, which we call Shannon, um, we actually use machine learning inside the machine to ascertain the accuracy of our encoding scheme on the fly, if you will. We can make adjustments on the fly. So that's becoming progressively more commonplace across all industry. You know, you internalize The capability, you're not dealing with it so directly and kind of automatically optimizes the operation of your your process or your infrastructure. The second thing is in our explorations for um, uh, using DNA to compute, we think there are some opportunities in uh, visual recognition and a couple of other areas where this might actually be a very good Landing spot for DNA computing, so we're looking at that as, as we speak so so it has a role there but notice I didn't try to say it's universally good for all AI or all machine learning and I think that's the premise of the argument I made just prior to your question about the future really evolving to a point of hybridization of technologies uh, as people decompose these workflows and, and apply the best tool they have for each component piece of the uh, you know, deconstructed, deconstructed workflow. And, and that relates back to quantum as well. I mean, I think, um, you know, we think of quantum more as an accelerator to conventional computing than as a standalone computer that, uh, you know, solves everything from problems in molecular dynamics to payroll. I mean, that's just a stupid statement because there's no advantage quantum is going to give you in some of the application domains which are quite wonderfully dealt with by conventional computing. And so conventional computing, von Neumann type machines will be here for the foreseeable future. Uh, They're just going to be augmented by the incorporation of these other capabilities. Uh, And some of it will be software. By the way, in the AI world today, there are applications that can actually increase the the effective performance of a computer by an order of magnitude. You can't get that from Moore's law, right? Moore's law, as you go generation to generation now may give you 10% performance improvement, but there are software approaches um, that can give you an order of magnitude. IBM has done this with a Bayesian application that they apply to serial optimization or simulation problems. And you do see order of magnitude improvement in those applications without any change to the hardware whatsoever. So it's, you know, software, it's hardware, it's different types of hardware, it's the incorporation of biological um, machinery, if you will, or in some cases, uh, electronic devices that are inspired by biological mechanisms. All these things are part of the stew that's being stirred right now uh, in the private sector and the government sector and so on, to see which of these things come out and really have an effective role in some of the domains that are important either commercially in, in the industrial sector research sector or some other sectors
2: so what do you see as what's the next wishful step you know for your your business and and then in the domain itself you're obviously you know super interested in the in the science and the the biologics and you know the the theory and the concept and I'm I'm just curious, you know, how, how does that fit into having to smush down into, you know, ultimately you're sitting at a desk and, and running a business that needs to be somehow viable in the next couple of years?
0: I think it's important and instructive to think about um, the state of the computing industry going back 70 years, which is beyond the memory of probably anyone who will hear this. But um, think about, you know, 1950 and the state of tape technology and computing technology, and maybe a few years earlier, vacuum tubes, et cetera, and the dramatic strides that have been been made since then, such that now after 70 years, there are certain things that happen that you don't even pay attention to. So take, for example, um, smartphones. So it um, doesn't matter whether it's an iPhone or Android or whatever. but probably every smartphone has a mechanism that allows you to back up your smartphone into the cloud. And the question is, who who owns a smartphone has ever inspected that copy that sits in the cloud? And the answer is almost no one. We just assume the data has been been properly copied and stored and is easily retrievable so they can reconstitute the image and all the content that was on your phone as this process unfolded. and the question is, why are people so comfortable with that, right? I mean, just think of all the physics and the complexities and the things that could go wrong, blah, 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 it goes on, you know, it's a list as long as you're on, but we're comfortable with that. And partly it's because we've had 70 years of trial and error where people have uh, made strides going forward to, to kind of create that degree of trust, if you will, in the electronic approach to storage and retrieval, et cetera, et cetera. We have to get that same level of trust, Um, and we're approaching it now, but we have to convince people that we are, in fact, trustworthy. So for me, one of the big problems in front of us this year is to showcase this theme of trust. Uh, How do we measure it? How do we characterize it? And how do we make people feel comfortable with it? And trust itself is something that may vary by market segment, right? So if you're inspecting photographs, for example, you can afford to drop a few pixels here and there. It's not a big deal. But on the other hand, there are other kinds of data files that you can't afford to drop anything right? because how critical it is. So we have to resolve these you know, grandiose terms like trust in the context of very particular market segments and the requirements that emerge out of that that intersect with the concept that I'm alluding to here. So I think it's an unglamorous thing. However, the achievement is um, unglamorous in the sense that everybody thinks it's a problem that's been well solved for a long time, but it's not. And there's work to be done and there's invention to be done and there's science to be performed to really get us to that step. Um, We think we have a pathway to do that this year. We think we'll our target is to get uh, quality of data storage uh, at the level of what you get from, you know, enterprise tape, if you will. So a bit error maybe one every ten to the 19 bit, something like that. That's pretty good. Tiny. Right? Yeah. Right.
2: They're very, very substantially high. Yeah. So.
0: Right. In fact, the the vast bulk of applications could probably choose to survive quite well if it was, oh, I don't know, ten to the minus sixteen. You know, a thousand times worse, so to speak. So that's why. It, we have to really explore and understand markets and requirements in a very refined way so that we don't we don't promulgate this notion of DNA for data encoding or for computing in areas where um, it's premature or not applicable. You know, you don't wanna create a, a buzz, if you will, or a hype that can't be realizable. Um, and so one of my tasks is to make sure that the nature of what we're doing is in sync with the messaging that we're producing. So if the whole field doesn't get overhyped, that's a quick pathway to
2: failure. I could think of all kinds of places that entrepreneurial uh, technology inventions have been uh, overhyped and continue to be. So looking at you, Bitcoin. But uh, (laughs) Dave, uh, fascinating conversation. My my brain needs more caffeine, I think, just to, you know, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this one. Myself. Uh, anybody who wants to have a conversation with you and about Catalog, um, how, do, how do they find you um, online and, and what types of folks are you interested in, in talking to?
0: Well, first of all, to find us, our URL is catalogdna.com because somebody out there took catalog.com <laughs> uh, as we were pulling the business together. But we're in Boston. Look up Catalog in Boston or look me up in Boston and you'll find us that way. We have a laboratory in Charlestown, in an old candy factory, which is part of the course when you when you do startups in a place like Boston, and so I'm reachable through through that uh, mechanism. Actually, it's it's almost anybody, and and let me qualify what that means. I'm not talking about dilettantes necessarily, but people in industry, people are in, engaged in biological approaches to computing, people working in algorithms. Uh, People working in machine learning and people working at applications in different kinds of industries are all informative. We we have, by the way, is one of the strategic pillars of how we do business, this notion of partnerships. And we have a number of those in play right now and a number that we're in discussion with as we speak as well. International also, um, because um, insight and knowledge can exist anywhere. So we, we have discussions with people in the UK, uh, other parts of Europe. We have a lot of different discussions with different universities around the world. Uh, we're having discussions with government agencies around the world as well. And it all is directed to, to helping us get, get a better insight about what the problems are that we can apply the technology to by virtue of getting a better understanding of the problems those people are dealing with. So those conversations are always really, really valuable.
2: Well, we're just going to send everyone your way, and we're going to hope that you have also good time management you know, on your hand, because you could have interesting conversations all day long. So <laughs> Dave, it, it's a, a pleasure to, to stretch my brain with you today. I wish you and Catalog a fantastic 2021.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.